Um, our experience is unique in many, many ways. Uh, there are many religions in the world that don't experience what we just did. In fact, the other day I had nothing to do, and so I, w I went to Wikipedia to look up uh, world religions. I, I do it sometime when you're bored. I was a little bored, so that's what I do in my free time. I looked up world religions. I just wanted to see how many world religions are there. Holy Toledo, like a bazillion. And I saw the names of religions I had never seen before. I want to read some of them, just a few. Uh, some I've heard of in YouTube, but others are mysterious to me. Baha'i, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Christian Universalism, Latter-day Saints, Unification Church, Unitarianism, Rastafarianism, Yazidism. Have you heard of that one? Of course not. Mandanism, Islam, Druze, Judaism, that's me, Shabakism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Mazdakimism, Mithraism, Zoroastrianism, Confucianism, Shinto, Taoism, to name a few. There are a bazillion of them. Some are peculiar to a geographic area, some to a particular people group, some to a particular time in history. But there's so many, they're all diverse, even by name, languages, there's such diversity. But the one thing all religions have in common is a declared and stated belief in deity, in God, as the particular faith group defines it. Uh, some religious groups do not define God in, as a person, a, in a personal way. He might be some sort of energy force. Or there might be a multiplicity of transcendent beings. Uh, nonetheless, every religion has this in common. The notion that there is a superior, even supreme being, termed God or in some other way, a synonym for the term. All religions have that in common. We are distinct from all religions, however, because the biblical perspective speaks not only of the existence of God, but a very narrow, exclusive, clearly and simply defined means by which we can access this God. This is where world religions are all the same. They believe in the existence of God, but they all differ from us with regard to what we believe about how we can connect with that God. Because every world religion believes in one way or another the way to connect with this otherwise unseen, unapproachable deity is through your efforts and energies. You have to exert yourself in some fashion, rules, creeds, a system, a code of conduct, ethics, morality. I didn't say it's all bad. I'm not saying that, but it's all on you. But this is where faith in Christ differs because here the burden is not on us. The burden has been borne by him. It's not our efforts, exertion, and works which usher us into a personal relationship with him. He's enabled it by exerting himself even unto death. Folks, this is a distinctive of biblical Christianity, which separates us from all the rest. So though there are all of these multiplicity of religions, a little confusing to sort them out, I divide them all into two categories. One has a do-it-yourself 
approach to God. And the other category is a done-for-you approach to God. And there's only one faith group in that category. I know I'm being a little arrogant and obnoxious here, but I'm just trying to tell you this is true. There's only one faith perspective that represents a done-for-you approach to God. That is biblical Christianity. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. You see, he did it all. And when he finished, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, representing the high priests of old, who when their workday was over, and it never was, would be permitted to sit down. But what Jesus did on the cross was such a total and complete provision for the atonement of our sin. He sat down. Remember from the cross, he said, it is finished, paid in full. God's case against us is finished, not because of the way we've exerted ourselves, not because of our uh, commitments to live a better life, not because of anything except our acceptance by faith in the finished work of the Lamb of God, Jesus himself. So, so I don't want to insult anybody, but I'm stating a fact Christianity stands alone with regard to its perspective on how do you come to grips with the fact that there is deity, he is unapproachably holy, you are not holy, how can you come to be at peace with him? Christianity is the only faith perspective that says he did it for you. He is the author of peace between you and Almighty God. He, in suffering and dying in your place, satisfied the righteous requirements of the law of God, and you now can receive a full and free pardon if only you accept and believe in what he has done. Folks, Christianity is unlike any of those other groups listed in Wikipedia you could see for yourself. Paul was once in one of these religious groups such as I, Judaism, and our religion is beautiful. It has such tremendously beautiful elements to it, and yet we also have 613 commandments. Not a measly old 10, 613. And so on a good day, <laughs> you're really not getting good grades with God. Let me tell you, folks, these are not suggestions. These are commandments. How many of these 613 are you able to pull off? And so I came to a realization one time in my life, holy Toledo, I cannot live up to God's standards. Why even try? So I distanced myself from any insinuation that I could ever be rightly related to Almighty God. And Paul had the same experience, only in a more intense way. He was a rabbi. He was Rabbi Shaul. That was his name. He trained under the greatest rabbis of the day a couple thousand years ago. And then he got radically and dramatically liberated from the throes of his own religion when he found out he could have a personal relationship with his own Messiah, the one our own prophets told us about. And now he just is screaming from the mountaintops to anyone who will listen that they too can get on, get in on a redemptive experience with Almighty God through the sacrifice of his son. And he wrote us this marvelous letter. It's called Romans, a letter, an epistle. And it's stock full of information, which we have to be right about, because if you're not right about what's in Romans, you're going to be wrong. And so Paul wants primarily the Jewish readers of his letter, the letter of Romans to the Jews and Gentiles in Rome. He wants them to know about the means by which they could be right with God. And so uh, in order to persuade them, look what he does. He's a smart guy. 
he's going to call the attention of Jewish people to two of the premier icons in Jewish tradition, Avraham and David, Abraham and David. And he's going to show them through their experience that we can be right with God, not by mitzvot, we call them, good deeds, by works, because we can never do enough, but by accepting God's gracious and good work on our behalf. So follow with me. We're in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Did you ever imagine we'd get this far? Romans 4, my good. I'm out of breath. We're going so fast. Romans 4, take a look, verse 1. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, so we know who his intended audience is. Abraham is the forefather, the great patriarch of Jewish people. What then uh, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham, if Abraham was justified by works, boy, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham was really something. He was righteous. We call him a tzaddik. He was righteous. You know the stuff he did. God said, move, and he moved. Remember? He was in one place, go to a place. Abram was wondering where. God said, I'll show you. Wow. He did all this obediently. He moved. When he got there, do you remember years later, God said, offer to me on Mount Moriah your son, your only son. Do you remember that? <gasps> Abraham was willing to do that. I'm telling you, this is a good egg. So if he chose to boast about his good deeds, he would really command our attention. That's what the verse says. He could boast before other humans about the good things he's done, but that won't get him any points with God. Because no matter how many good things he sought to pile up on his resume, he still falls so far short of the perfect holiness, the unflawed, undiminished holiness of Almighty God. Abraham might be far better than any of us here, but he falls far short of the perfectly holy, sinless deity with whom we have to make do. So Paul said he may have something to boast about in his works, but not before God. And then he says in verse 3, for what does the scripture say, folks? I wish we would memorize that, just that phrase. For what does the scripture say? So someone will say, well, you know, in my opinion, okay, you're entitled to your opinion, but what does the scripture say? Some will say, but I was taught, okay, okay, good, but what does the scripture say? Some will say, my denomination, all right, wonderful, that's good, but what does the scripture say? Someone will say, I just read a book. I got gotcha, you, I got gotcha. you. But what does the scripture say? Folks, that's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what I think, what you think. What does the scripture say? You know what that phrase means? It means one with as much stature as Paul himself believed sacred scripture to be the supreme authority. It's not what you think. It's not what I think. It's not my tradition. It's not yours. What do the scriptures say? And here's what they say. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Folks, that is perhaps one of the most significant verses in all Old Testament scripture. We call that Torah. 
That's Torah. That's the holiest part of the Hebrew scriptures. Genesis 15, 6. What do the scriptures say? Paul is saying to Jewish readers, it says this. Then Abraham believed God, and he, God, reckoned it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Abraham had righteousness put on his account, not because of all the good things he did, but because he believed God. Believed God for what? God said, you're going to have a child. Your wife is going to bear a son. What? They're advanced in age. They're past childbearing years. What? God said, this is going to happen. And God took him outside and showed him the stars. And he said, look, Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. On that basis, God took something called right standing, and he put it on Abraham's account. It's an accounting term. Abraham is in the deficit column. We all are as far as points with God. Based on Abraham's belief in God's promise, God said, I'm going to take a sufficient quantity of righteousness, and I'm going to put it on your account. It's going to cancel out any debt you may otherwise owe me. And this is all through the vehicle of your faith, not your exertion, not your good deeds, not your mitzvot, not your living by a code of conduct, not by your religious experience, not by your circumcision, not by your baptism, not by... The thing that pleases God most is to be taken at his word. That's not so unusual, is it? God gave Abraham his word. Abraham believed in it. God made note of it. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Look, here's what happened. Abraham just came off a victorious military campaign. He was living in the south, the south of the Dead Sea, a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. You've heard about it. You can go near there today if you care to in Israel. And then his relative Lot was taken, was kidnapped by four uh, invading small armies led by four kings. Abraham, feeling his responsibility to rescue his family member, summoned uh, 313 men and traveled north to a place called Dan. You can go there in Israel today. I'm not making this up. This is not mythology. These are real places. He went up to Dan, and he managed to defeat these four kings and bring back Lot uh, to his home. You know what happens after a victory like that, after a high in your life? Have you had this experience? A lot of times after a high in your life, you get a low in your life. Does that happen to you or is it just me? Something really, really cool happens. It's an emotional uh, uh, high. There's joy. There's exuberance. Maybe you get the job you want. I, I don't know. Something like that. And then after that, life is a letdown for a little bit until emotional equilibrium is established. So after this emotional high, I think it's very possible, even for one such as Abraham, to be thinking, you know, God, things didn't turn out the way I thought. You told me to move from Ur of the Chaldees to go to this place I've never been before. There's a bunch of people here that don't like me. Um, and what's worse, I don't have anyone to leave anything to. When I die, that ends it. I, there's nobody from my loins and from Sarah's womb to whom I could leave things, my name, 
my character, material things. There's nobody who's going to carry on my name. I, I think he was discouraged and depressed at this particular time. And in this context, God says to him, it's in Genesis 15, verse 1, don't fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But then Abraham feels like he has to sort of inform God and maybe what God is missing. And so he says in Genesis 15, verses 2 and 3, Lord God, what will you give me? I'm childless. And the heir of my house is someone called Eliezer of Damascus, Syria. This is someone in my house, you know. But he wasn't, he's not born. He's not biologically connected to me. So then God promises him something in verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 15. He says this, look, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He will be your heir. And he took him outside, took Abraham outside. He said, look toward the heaven, count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. This is a man in his late 80s. His wife is old. Um, uh, they've never had a child. She's been, I think, infertile. And now they're past the childbearing years. And God asks Abraham, Abraham, check it out. You see all those, can you count them? I don't think you can count them. So shall your descendants be. And now we have Abraham's response. Genesis 15, verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed God. God said, I will. I will bring forth life from a dead womb. I will do this. And Abraham believed God. And on that basis, God reckoned it to him as righteous. And Paul quotes that very verse here in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Abraham is childless. Sarah is infertile. And Abraham, in spite of the reality revealed to his eyes, believed, creator God said something, I believe he has the capacity to fulfill it. And because of this, because of this, long before the practice of circumcision, long before the giving of the law of Moses, long before the offer of Isaac in sacrifice, Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. God promised. Abraham believed God's promise. And God said, you are okay with me. See the word believed? Abraham believed God. The underlying Hebrew word for belief means say amen. <laughs> That's what it means. We say amen. And we've anglicized this now. It's amen. Amen. So, so here's the deal. God gave a promise. Abraham said, amen, which means I believe it is true. Did you know that every time you say amen, you are saying, I agree, I accept, I believe, I confirm, I'm with you. When you say amen, that's what Abraham did. He said amen. <laughs> and based on his amen with response to God's promise, God said, you are now okay with me. It pleases me when you take me up on my word. It pleases me when you trust me. It displeases me when you doubt me, when you think I'm lying, when you dismiss what I have to say. Wouldn't you feel the same? 
Abraham said amen, and God said, now you're righteous. About 2,000 years after Abraham, Paul, another Jewish guy, tells the Jewish people in Rome that righteousness comes to them in exactly the same way as it comes to Gentile people, which is in exactly the same way as it came to Abraham, by taking God up on what he has provided. That's how we are considered to be right with God. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 4, to the one who works, that is to say, works to be at peace with God, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due. Folks, when you go to work, it's a very good thing. You owe your employer a good day's work, and what does the employer owe you? A wage. You may, out of courtesy on payday, say thank you, but you don't, you don't typically say thank you. It's not a gift you're getting. It's a debt your employer owes you. You owe the debt of service. Your employer owes you the debt of remuneration. And so to the one who works, his wage is credited, not as a favor, but what is due. But, verse 5, to the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the person who says, oh God, I'm exhausted trying to connect with you. I've tried religion. I've tried sacraments. I've tried ceremonies. I've tried fasting. I've tried giving. I've tried giving up this. I've tried taking on that. Oh God, I've tried cleaning up my own act. I've tried New Year's resolutions. I've read every self-help book known to humankind. Oh God, I'm exhausted. I can't work anymore. I'm simply going to accept the fact you did the work for me. I accept what you've done on my behalf. To that person, God reckons to him a measure of right net righteousness which keeps that person in right standing with God. And why is it this way? If we think we have earned our status with God, we won't thank him and praise him. We'll say, you owe me. Religions that suggest we work for our salvation are religions which ultimately will hold God as a debtor to them. But those who are justified by faith realize they're in debt, a debt of gratitude and thanksgiving to Almighty God. And so then it says in verse 5 something which I know my people really were shocked by. Can you see the phrase, he who justifies the ungodly? In the Hebrew Scriptures, you don't do that. You don't justify the ungodly. In other words, it's wicked. So, for instance, in Exodus 23, 7, uh, it says, I will not acquit the guilty. In Deuteronomy 25, 1, when Moses is giving instructions to our ancient judges, he commanded them to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Here, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, we're finding out that Almighty God is one who justifies the ungodly. Why? Well, first of all, there's no godly people running around. Frankly, all of us are ungodly. Nobody by nature is moving in a God-word direction. All of us are ungodly. But secondly, it's because God is merciful. 
That's his nature. He's merciful and therefore willing to justify the ungodly. And so he doesn't seek to make us godly first. That's what religions do. Once you clean up your act, you may be presentable to God. Oh, no, you can never succeed in that. So God doesn't make us godly in order to then justify us. He justifies the ungodly. You know who you are, with all due respect, just like me? ungodly, yet free and forgiven. Because Almighty God justifies the ungodly. And so uh, Paul is saying to his Jewish readers, folks, that's the way it was with Abraham. But not only Abraham, what about King David? We call him David HaMelech, David the King. He's like a big gun in Judaism. So it says in verse 6, just as David also like Abraham, speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Look, David did all kinds of stuff. He defeated Goliath. Remember that? Holy Toledo, that's a big deal. You know what else he did? He showed respect and honor to crazed King Saul. Remember when Saul wanted to kill him? He refused to lay hands on him as the anointed king. David worshipped before the Lord. He danced and worshipped before the Lord. You know what David, he wrote Israel's hymn book, the book of Psalms. David did all this kind of stuff. And yet in spite of it all, David himself speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then Paul quotes David's own words from Psalm 32. They're repeated here in verses 7 and 8. Blessed, David's words, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Can you imagine that? That's a blessing. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David said that's a blessing. Well, maybe you're thinking, yeah, <clears throat> but maybe David's sins were not as big as mine. Maybe you're thinking that. <sighs> so let's talk about the commandments David, our king, King David, violated. He took a fancy to someone else's wife. We actually in Israel stand on the spot where you can see how he would have seen her, her name was Bathsheba, bathing. He saw her. He wanted her. He's the king. He abused his authority. He committed adultery. Last time I checked, that's a violation of one of the big commandments, right? Didn't stop there. <clears throat> her husband's around. He's coming back from service in the army. David said, this is not good. I got to deal with this guy. He arranged. He's the king. He arranged essentially to send him to the front lines. His name was Uriah, dead. The last time I checked, murdering is sort of not a good thing either. He lied, he committed adultery, he was a murderer. And then on one occasion, he cast himself upon the grace and mercy of God. He made no defense. He didn't say, I've been pretty good. What about the Goliath incident? That's, you know, that's no small feat. I read a lot of cool songs. Nothing. Nothing. He came as a debtor. He made no claim to anything. He came with empty hands. He had nothing to offer. It's just a plea. Oh, God, forgive me. 
have mercy on me, please. Don't hold my sins against me. And God didn't, and God forgave him. And folks, this is exactly how it is to be with us. God put our sins on Christ's account, and he put Christ's righteousness on our account. That is not fair. That's right. That's pure mercy and grace. Pure mercy and grace. We are saved by grace through faith in God's provision for our sin. There's only one way of salvation. There was for Abraham and for David and for Paul and for the others in Rome and for us today. There's only one way. We're saved. It's by God's grace. And and, and the medium by which we tap into it is through our faith. In what? In his provision for our sin. Those who have put their faith in Almighty God uh, for his provision of his son as an atonement for our sin are completely forgiven. Nothing, absolutely nothing could ever be brought up ever again for which provision has not been made. Our sin, past, present, and future, has been totally covered, wiped away, atoned for by the Passover lamb who is Jesus. Folks, believers are the most fortunate people on earth. Many came forward today. There are health problems, family dysfunction, um, all kinds of challenges and upheaval. I understand that. And yet, in spite of it all, we're still the most fortunate people on earth. Folks, my sin, your sin is not held against We got plenty of it. It's not held against us. Jesus paid it all. Jesus took care of it all. There's a verse in the Psalms. As far as the east is from the west. Hey, let me ask you a question. If I decide to travel tomorrow from Houston to New York to get like a good bagel, what direction am I going in? I'm going east. And then if I decide to leave New York and cross the ocean and go to, say, London, what direction? I'm going east. And if I get tired of London and I decide to go from London to, say, Japan, what direction am I traveling? East. And I'm tired of uh, Japanese food, and I want to come all the way back to the long ways. I want to get back to the United States, and, uh, and, and I end up in Houston. What direction? East! And so Psalm 103, verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, east never catches up to west. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Can I make this statement? I hope I, I, I really live up to this. No matter what may befall me, no matter what losses, no matter what, I'm not asking for trouble. Don't misunderstand. I'm one of the most fortunate people on earth. My sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. In the end, it's going to be all good. I'm going to stand in the presence of Almighty God. I'm not going to be on my knees pleading with him as a beggar. I'm going to jump up on his lap as a son. Flaws and all. I got that. Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. We are the most fortunate people. David calls himself blessed. Blessed is the man, the woman, the Jew, the Gentile, the old person, the young person, the black person, the white person, the male, the female, it doesn't matter. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There's no work I could do to give me that status. There's nothing I could do to buy God off. There's no good deeds that could balance out my bad stuff. I can't do that. I'm justified by faith and faith alone. So are you. Nothing's changed. It was the same for Abraham, for David, for Paul. It's the same today. We have no works to offer God sufficient to make us right with him. But what God offers 
by sheer and utter grace and mercy is a righteousness credited. It's not earned, deserved, merited. It's a credited righteousness. There's none of those religions I read at the beginning have this notion of accredited righteousness. It's an earned righteousness. You have to merit righteousness. Oh, no. God credits it to our account by faith in his promised provision for our sin. Except my son. What are you going to do with my son? Except my son who suffered and died for you, and I will forgive all of your sins. Folks, there's absolutely no hope for us to ever be right with God in our own efforts and merits. Our hope has to be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And so here's the deal. We dare not trust even the sweetest religious frame. No way. Instead, we have to wholly lean on Jesus' name. Therefore, it's on Christ. He's the solid rock. We have to stand. Why? Because everything else is sinking sand. That's a good hymn, isn't it? You know, that was written in 1834 in England by a man named Edward Mote. He was born to pub owners. They owned a bar. I don't know if it was their personality or they just got busy in business, but he was a neglected little kid. No hugs, no affirmation, no nothing. Empty. One day he heard about this Jesus and he believed. He got hugged by Almighty God and he hugged him back. He met the one who loved him so much that he was willing to die for him. Edward Mote said, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Fill the void, forgive my sin. I'm on such shaky ground. My parents didn't come through. I don't know which end is up. All other ground is sinking sand. And he wrote the words to this song. It's called The Solid Rock. 1834. Stands true today. We ought to sing it. Can you stand with me? Let's, listen. Do you know Jesus this way, the way Edward Mote did? Think about it as you sing this song. Maybe tonight is the night when you say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you like the writer of that song. Maybe you already know him. Then you could really sing this with some vim and vigor. The words are going to appear. Let's sing this together as they appear. No better words than that. All other ground is sinking sand. Do you know him as the solid rock in your life? You're the most fortunate person. No matter what other losses you may experience in life, you have gained an everlasting entree into the arms of Almighty God. Your sins have been cast behind you. You've been adopted into his family. You're no longer an adversary. You're a son. You're a daughter. You are an heir of the king. On Christ the solid rock I stand. If you not made that decision, as it was with Abraham and David and Paul, God requires a personal decision. He imposes himself on no one. If you not ever made that decision, simply to heed his invitation, simply to say, I've heard your promise, I believe. And then can you hear God say, and based on your faith in me, I have reckoned it to you as righteousness. If you've not ever made that decision, we'd like you to spend some time with wonderful people.